Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Silicon Valley Bank's failure ripples through global markets. We saw huge plunges in, for example, German bond rates. And it was a similar situation as in the U.S. There's a flight to safety, the shift of people moving their deposits into short-term government bonds. Plus, President Biden prepares to unveil new gun control measures. And six months later, mystery still shrouds who attacked Russia's Nord Stream pipeline. It's Tuesday, March 14th. I'm Luke Vargas with The Wall Street Journal, and here's the AM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories moving your world today. We begin with the unfolding banking crisis in the United States, where regulators are reportedly taking another crack at auctioning failed Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was unable to find a buyer for the bank over the weekend, but we're reporting that officials have additional flexibility now to sell the firm after regulators declared its failure a threat to the financial system. And for more on this story, we're joined by Markets reporter Anna Hertenstein. Anna, give us the latest. Tell us what we know about this potential next auction of SVB. So in the first auction on Sunday, none of the largest U.S. banks bid for SVB. Officials told lawmakers on Monday that there was at least one other offer made by another institution, but this was declined by the FDIC. So now we have a second auction coming up, but the timing of it is still a bit unclear. But what we do know is that regulators have the ability to offer potential buyers some deal sweeteners. That would include things like loss-sharing agreements, and that's according to former regulators. And Anna, this auction, along with other interventions that we reported on yesterday, are aimed at stemming the potential fallout from SVB's collapse. And yet, looking at stock markets yesterday in particular, other banks are definitely feeling the pain here too, right? Absolutely. And this is especially seen in regional banks. Those stocks saw their largest decline in three years. That's the biggest since the COVID crisis. And some of these losses were really massive. Like, for example, First Republic was down nearly 62%. There's this index of commercial banks called the KBW NASDAQ index, and that fell about 12%, and that was also its largest decline since March 2020. And this really shows that there are deeper concerns among investors about the health of the banking industry. It's not just SVB. No, it's not. And adding to the pressure on banks, overnight Moody's said it is now reviewing six U.S. banks for ratings downgrades, including First Republic, as well as Western Alliance and Zions, to name a few, with the credit rating agency saying it's looking at their deposit levels since the start of the year and their capital positions. So, Anna, definitely a lot more to watch there on the banking front, but also There's more, right? Because we're seeing a lot of action in bond markets, too. Yeah. Yesterday, there was a massive rally in the global bond market. It was really huge. Like yesterday, we saw the biggest one-day decline in short-term treasury yields since 1987. This morning, markets are looking a bit calmer, but we'll have to wait and see if that holds. And the reason for this big rally is that there was a big change in investors' expectations for interest rates. Because of the stress in markets and the financial system, Investors were doubting that major central banks like the Fed and the ECB will tighten monetary policy much more. There's a big group pricing yesterday in derivatives markets and in bond markets, which really show this rising expectation that the Fed could even pause its interest rate hikes. 
And just a few days ago, there, there was a huge majority of investors that were expecting the Fed would keep raising them. So this really was a big shift. And Anna, it now seems like these trends are playing out and reverberating beyond America's shores. Give us a global outlook. This really had major ripple effects around the world. There's also essentially increased concern among savers at banks. So there was a shift of people moving their deposits into short-term government bonds. In Germany, the Bundesbank convened its crisis team on Monday to assess a possible fallout for banks and markets in Germany. For example, Commerce Bank lost 13%. So the ECB is also coming under pressure from this. Um, we saw similar bets being made about the Eurozone's interest rates. We saw huge plunges in, for example, German Bund rates, with investors expecting that the ECB could also slow its interest rate hikes. Uh, we'll get a clearer picture on this on Thursday when the ECB have a monetary policy meeting. And just looking at stock markets this morning, for example, like Japan, Korea, and China have all closed lower on the back of this plunge on Wall Street yesterday. That was Wall Street Journal markets reporter Anna Hertenstein. Anna, thank you so much. Thanks so much. And investors will be getting further clues on whether the economy has entered a new period of vulnerability when we get U.S. inflation data later this morning. If price rises slow, it would suggest that recent rate hikes from the Fed have worked to tamp inflation, while a further jump in prices could complicate matters ahead of the Federal Reserve's meeting next week. In other news today, Volkswagen has chosen Ontario, Canada as the site for its first battery plant outside of Europe. The company said it would begin production at the new site in 2027 and that the location provides access to raw materials needed for battery production as well as renewable energy to power the plant. The move also means that Volkswagen could possibly cash in on subsidies and incentives for the clean energy transition that were included in the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act. Wall Street Journal reporter Kim McCrail says that VW's move comes a week after the company criticized the EU for a lack of financial aid to help jumpstart new green technologies. We're in an interesting moment for the electric vehicle industry. There's a lot of growth and a lot of companies are making their plans right now for a lot of future growth. Those investments could have impacts for years and decades to come. So although officials in Europe will say there's enough space for everybody to invest, there's some fear in Europe about falling behind the United States and a lot of pressure to try to make sure that the conditions for companies are similar in both locations. A win for Uber and Lyft, as a California court has ruled that the ride-hailing companies can continue to treat their drivers as independent contractors. That said, the court did ask that a clause from a California ballot measure that restricted collective bargaining be scrapped. The ballot measure effectively exempts Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash from reclassifying their drivers as employees. The companies are in a global tug-of-war with regulators over whether and how to grant more benefits to workers in the so-called gig economy. The Service Employees International Union is considering appealing Monday's ruling. President Biden is set to announce new gun control measures today when he visits Monterey Park, California, the site of a January mass shooting. Biden's executive order is designed to move the U.S. as close to universal background checks as possible without passing congressional legislation. 
Senior administration officials say that Biden will direct the Justice Department to increase FBI background checks of would-be gun buyers and prevent firearms dealers with revoked licenses from continuing to sell guns. Biden is also set to ask the Federal Trade Commission to examine how manufacturers market guns, especially to children. And we are exclusively reporting that Chinese President Xi Jinping plans to speak with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time since the start of the war in Ukraine. The conversation is expected to follow Xi's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow next week. And Journal senior correspondent Keith Jai says it reflects Beijing's growing interest in serving as a global power broker. Xi Jinping and his government believe that Beijing can offer an alternative to the U.S.-led model of international relations, one that relies more on financial and commercial power to sway other countries. Just last week, China helped facilitate a surprise diplomatic breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So this is a significant development as it shows that China is really willing to play an active role in mediating global conflicts. And coming up, we'll dive into the continuing mystery over who attacked Russia's Nord Stream natural gas pipeline last fall. The journal's Sunat Rasmussen has been looking for clues around the Baltic Sea, and he joins us after the break. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Last September, explosions rocked the Nord Stream natural gas pipeline at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Western officials initially named Russia as a key suspect, speculating that the attack was an act of sabotage in response to sanctions that were triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But months later, Western officials no longer suspect Russia of ordering the attack. And U.S. officials have even begun investigating whether a pro-Ukrainian group could have been responsible. Journal reporter Sunat Rasmussen just returned from Denmark's Christianzu Island in the Baltic Sea to untangle the mystery that still surrounds the pipeline attack. And he's here now to share what he found out. Sunat, before we get to your latest reporting trip, just back us up. Remind us where this investigation into who might have been responsible for the Nord Stream attack stands at present. So for many months, the general consensus seemed to be that this was a Russian-led attack on, on the pipelines. And then the trace kind of went cold for a long time, and we didn't get any updates from intelligence services. All three countries that have led independent investigations, so that's Germany, Sweden, and Denmark, have all been extremely tight-lipped. And then last week, we were told that intelligence services in the West had largely concluded that they didn't think Russia was behind it. And instead, suspicion has centered on what they call the pro-Ukrainian group. The investigation had zoomed in on one particular boat, a 50-foot-long sailing yacht, which supposedly played a key role in this attack. Were you able to get any new details on any of that on your latest trip? So I went to Christian, so off the Danish island of Bornholm. It's a very isolated place in Denmark. It's, a, it's this island of 
only 98 residents. And I went there because we knew that the, the yacht in question had docked there for a day or two last year in September. And no one seemed to remember any kind of suspicious activity in the harbour, despite the size of the island, is very busy in the summer. So a yacht that docks for a day or two is not something that people, they, they notice. But I did find out that police had come back in December and again in January asking for information about one particular boat. They didn't explicitly connect it with the Nord Stream sabotage, but they did ask about this one particular boat and whether the administrator of the island kept a registry of the boats that had entered the harbour from September 16th to 18th. So that's about 10 days before the sabotage. And it's also about 10 days after we know that this yacht in question set out from, from Germany. Suna, could we just go back to the immediate aftermath of this attack? What led Western intelligence agencies to initially pin this on Russia? And how do we get all the way to where we are now, where agencies are considering whether a pro-Ukrainian group was maybe behind this? I think in the beginning, people assumed it was Russia because it just fit into the general atmosphere at the time. And it did seem sort of counterintuitive, maybe on the face of it, that Russia would be attacking its own infrastructure. And I think the assumption was that maybe Russia had done it as a false flag operation to try and cast itself as a victim of this war. Russia consistently denied being behind it. The message we're getting from intelligence services, this group, is not necessarily directed by Kiev or by the Ukrainian government. But I think now the thinking is that Ukraine was trying to target Russian infrastructure as part of pressuring Moscow during the war. And the concern is that if this does turn out to be a pro-Ukrainian group, that the Ukrainians have shown a willingness to to take the war outside of its own borders into NATO states, effectively, because this is also an attack on, on German infrastructure. But I should stress here that we haven't seen any evidence of, of who's be really behind it. And the Ukrainians have completely denied that whoever was behind the sabotage had any links to Kiev. Just on this point about the possible involvement of a pro-Ukrainian group in all of this, as far as I understand from your reporting, that was never ruled out from the very start by Western intelligence agencies, but they never really discussed that at all. Why? I think there's a question for the intelligence services, really. We do get the sense that the intelligence services and Western governments know more than they're telling us and that they're really trying to keep a tight lid on this investigation. You can imagine why. Like, let's say that this is a pro-Ukrainian group. That would be very damaging to the Ukrainian cause. All of this raises the question, Suna, of whether it's likely we'll ever know who was responsible for this attack and actually if it's important that we do. Well, as journalists, we like to see this resolved. Of course, we like the truth to get out. I think no matter who is behind it, if the truth were to come out, it would reverberate quite dramatically in geopolitical terms because someone would have to be accountable for it and it would change the landscape surrounding the war in Ukraine. Maybe perhaps with the exception of it being Russia. But if it's an allied country, which intelligence services seem to suggest it might be, or a group from an allied country, then that would dramatically shift or could endanger the alliance behind Ukraine, which is so far remaining quite firm. So I think that's also why intelligence services might want to keep this a secret if, if they can. That was Wall Street Journal correspondent Suna Rasmussen. Suna, thank you so much. You're welcome, Luke. 
And finally, how would you feel about using your face as a ticket? Venues from conference halls to sports arenas are increasingly opting to use facial recognition technology over more traditional tickets and touting that technology's speed, convenience, and security as benefits, even as some customers find the whole thing to be a bit creepy. For instance, WSJ personal tech columnist Nicole Nguyen says it's not always clear how your data is being used. It really depends on where you are. States like California and Illinois have biometric data privacy laws, but outside of those states, you're not protected by those laws because there is no federal law governing how biometric data needs to be deleted, stored, shared at the U.S. level. You can certainly look at that company's privacy policy to see how long they're retaining the data, where they're storing it, but Ultimately, you cannot predict whether or not that company, if they do choose to keep your biometric data, chooses to pivot in the future. Maybe today they're an access point entry company that's trying to process people who are going through a stadium. Maybe tomorrow they're signing up with law enforcement to provide a facial recognition product to police or other agencies. And that's What's News for Tuesday morning. We'll be back tonight with a new show. I'm Luke Vargas with The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening.